in heaven, you're looking at a, a, the ultimate version of what the temple looked like on earth in heaven. But instead of being filled with water, it's a sea of glass. And this is very interesting to me because the water was used to cleanse yourself. They would get that water to clean their hands so that they could be ceremonially clean to enter into the holy place, to go into God's presence. So it's crystal, it's glass in heaven because everything is already purified. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. It's been a couple weeks. <laughs> Feels like a really long time. Um, we left off <clears throat> with uh, at First Kings six, and we'll be picking up. Solomon just built the temple, and uh, now we're picking up in chapter seven. Really, what we're dealing with is Solomon. For the first bit, he builds his palace, and then there's a little bit more about the temple, and then the dedication of the temple, and that's the focus of tonight. Let's pray over our uh, our first Bible study here in the new, new space. Father God, <clears throat> thank you. Thank you for providing us uh, a place to gather together and to continue meeting, to continue studying your word, to continue opening it up and understanding you and your plan. Uh, help draw us closer to each other. Help draw us closer to you. Help us to understand you and your plan better through the study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm not going to waste a, a lot of time. I'm just going to get right in into it. We, you know, Solomon was building the temple where we left off. And chapter 7 starts off with, But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, so he finished all his house. Now what we learned is that it took seven years for him to build the temple. And he spent 13 years building his own palace. You can make any sort of deductions you want from that about how Solomon was worried about himself. But at the same point, before you think it's all selfish that Solomon spent twice as much time on his own house as he did on the temple, understand that the temple had one function. The palace had several. It wasn't just his dwelling place. It was where judgments were made over when people would bring cases to the king for judgment. Uh, there were special areas for his his family or his wives and other stuff in the temple besides just making Solomon com comfortable. So uh, 
But maybe, maybe it was some sort of self-indulgent thing. Don't really know. We're not told. All we know is that it took nearly twice as long for him to build his own palace as it did to build the temple. So it says, verse 2, He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits, with four rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams on the pillars. Remember, a cubit is about 18 inches, so just one and a half times whatever number you're looking at is about how many feet that was. So you're looking at 150 feet by 75 feet by 45 feet. And it was paneled with cedar above the beams that were on 45 pillars, 15 to a row. And there are windows with beveled frames, three rows, and windows uh, and window was opposite window in three tiers. And all the doorways and doorposts had rectangular frames, and the window was opposite the window in three tiers. Basically, what you're getting here is Solomon used really fine and expensive materials on his palace, <clears throat> but not as much gold. You don't hear gold, you just hear cedar. So he's getting a very nice palace, but it shouldn't pale in comparison to the temple. Um, but a description of the temple, if you, or his, his palace, you'll notice that the windows and the doors, what you're looking at is there's a lot of symmetry. The windows are opposite each other from one wall to the other on the palace. Um, basically, it's just pretty. It's really nice. He's the wealthiest king in the world. <clears throat> so he, and it's three tiers, three stories high, windows opposite of each other, a lot of symmetry, very pleasing to the eye, nice expensive materials. Solomon is indulging a little bit. He also made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits or 75 feet. It's width 30 cubits or 45 feet. And in front of them was a portico with pillars and a canopy in front of them. Then he made a hall for the throne, the hall of judgment, where he might judge. And it was paneled with cedar from floor to ceiling. Again, notice that there's extra function at the palace. This is the place where he would make judgments over those who bring cases to the palace. And the house where he dwelt had another court inside the hall, like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like the, like this hall for his Pharaoh, for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken as wife. <clears throat> All these were of costly stones, cut to size, trimmed with saws inside and out, from the foundation to the eaves, and also on the foundation was of costly stones, large stones, some ten cubits or fifteen feet, and some eight cubits or twelve feet. And above were costly stones hewn to size in cedar wood. The court was enclosed with three rows of hewn stones and a row of cedar beams. So were the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the temple. So you get a brief description of Solomon's palace. You find out there's multiple rooms, lots of different things happening for all of the different functions. There's a lot of symmetry and expensive materials. That's basically what we get about Solomon's palace. And then it moves on to a man named Hiram. And then we focus on the, the temple for a little bit again, starting in verse 13. So now King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze worker. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did all of his work. So this man was a descendant of one of the Jewish tribes, but also a descendant of the Phoenicians. And he happened to be a really skilled metal worker, and he gets Solomon's 
blessing to do work for the temple. He cast two pillars of bronze, one each one 18 cubits high and the line 12 cubits high. He measured the circumference of each. Then he made two capitals cast of bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits and the height of the other capital was five cubits. He made a lattice network with wreaths of chain work and the capitals were on top of the pillars, seven chains for one capital and seven for the other. So he made the pillars two rows of pomegranates above the network all around uh, to cover the capitals that were on top, and thus he did for the other capital. The capitals were on top of the pillars, and the hall were in the shape of pillars, four cubits. The capitals on the two pillars also had pomegranates above them by the convex surface, which was next to the network, and there were 200 such pomegranates in rows on each of the capitals all around. And then he set up the pillar pillars by the vestibule of the temple, he set up the pillar on the right and called its name Jachin, and the other up the pillar on the left that he named Boaz. And the tops of the pillars were in shape of lilies in the work. Uh, so the work of the pillars was finished. And so he, he, names, he names them. Boaz means of strength. Um, and so he's basically asking to bless this place with strength. And you just see there's a lot of ornate things. Pomegranates. Pomegranates happen in a lot of Solomon's writings. You'll notice that, and it seems to well, there's a lot of, of symbolism with them. One of them is sort of decadence and luxury. Uh, and this, these are on the temple because this is a lavish place because it's made for the greatest thing. It's made for God to dwell with his people. That's the symbol behind the temple. Um, and in terms of what did this look like, you you probably have as much trouble picturing this in your head as me. But there's a lot of pillars and a lot of ornate work. That's as much as I can give you. There are pictures online, but we don't really know how accurate they are. All we know is it was magnificent. It wasn't the largest building, but it was imposing because of just how, how delicate and detailed all of the work was and how impressive all of the materials were between cedar and gold-plated things and the work that was done with carving, just unbelievable. But then we get to this really interesting piece about the temple that this man named Hiram is, is putting together. It says, he made the sea of cast bronze 10 cubits or 15 feet from one brim to the other. It was completely round. Its height was five cubits, or seven and a half feet, so seven and a half feet high, and uh, a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference, or 45 feet in circumference. This is massive. And notice they called it a sea. That's how big this thing was. And basically, when you get to the full description of it, what it looks like is you've got bronze cattle or oxen facing three bronze cattle or oxen facing in each direction. And then sitting on top of that is this gigantic bronze basin. And inside of it is just a ton of water, about 1,500 gallons of water. And that was water that they would use. They would collect the water from there and bring it to the other basins that were lower to the ground for the priests to wash their hands before they would enter the holy place or after they would commit the sacrifices to, to be cleansing, right? So this is the way they would cleanse themselves before they entered the holy place. 
uh, and this is where the water came from. Now I bring this up because there is a really interesting connection in the book of Revelation. Because it's interesting that they use the word sea, because in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, it says this. This is when John, in the book of Revelation, is caught up into the throne room in heaven. And he's describing the throne room. And there are different elements of the throne room in heaven that resemble the tabernacle or the temple. And this one is really interesting because it says, before the throne, so before looking at the temple, the basin would have been sitting outside in the courtyard before you entered into the throne room. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures. And so when you look at the rest of the description in Revelation chapter 4 in the throne room of heaven, you see a lot of different elements that resemble the tabernacle and the temple. And this sea of glass is confusing, except when you look at the description of the temple. Because the, the basin, the bronze basin, was called the sea. And so if you're in heaven, you're looking at a, a, the ultimate version of what the temple looked like on earth in heaven. But instead of being filled with water, it's a sea of glass. And this is very interesting to me because the water was used to cleanse yourself. They would get that water to clean their hands so that they could be ceremonially clean to enter into the holy place, to go into God's presence. So it's crystal, it's glass in heaven because everything is already purified. There's no need for cleansing because the cleansing work was already done on the cross. And so that connection I just find extremely powerful. So let's look at the rest of this description. It says, below its brim were ornamental buds encircling it all around, uh, all around, 10 to a cubit. All the way around the sea, the ornamental buds were cast in two rows. When it was cast, it stood on the 12 oxen, three looking toward the north, three looking toward the west, three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east. The sea was set upon them, and all their back parts point inward. And it was a hand breadth thick, and its brim was like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained 2,000 baths, or about 1,500 gallons of water. And so that's that picture the, of the three oxen or, or bulls facing it north, south, east, and west with this sea and this giant brown basin sitting on top of it. Verse 27, he also made 10 carts of bronze, four cubits with the length of each, four cubits the width, and three cubits its height. And it was the design of the carts. They had panels, and panels were between frames, and on the panels were between the frames were lion, oxen, and cherubim. Interesting that also around the throne in, in Revelation chapter 4, that there were four living creatures, and as you dive into that, you find that their faces kind of are similar to this description here. And on the frames was a pedestal on top. Be below the lions and the oxen were wreaths of plated work. Every cart had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze. And it, its four feet had supports under the laver, were supports of cast bronze beside each wreath. Its opening inside the crown at the top in one cubit diameter. And the opening was round, shaped like a pedestal, and on the half cubit inside the diameter 
or in outside diameter, and also on opening were engravings, on the opening were engravings, but the panels were square, not round. Under the panels were the four wheels, and the axles of the wheels were joined to the cart, and the height of the wheel was one and a half cubits. The workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. Their axle pins, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all of cast bronze, and there were four supports at the four corners of each cart. Its supports were part of the cart itself. On the top of the cast, at the height was half a cubit, it was perfectly round, and on the top of the cart, its, phalange, its phalanges and its panels were of the same casting. On the plates of its phalanges and on its panels, he engraved cherubim, lions, and palm trees. Where there was a clear space on each with wreaths all around, thus he made the ten carts. All of them were the same mold, one measure and one shape. Then he made ten lavers of bronze. Each laver contained forty baths. Each laver was four cubits, and each of the ten carts was a laver. And he put the five carts on the right side of the house and the five on the left side of the house. And he set the sea on the right side of the house toward the southeast. So this is just a description of the water carrying devices and the bronze lavers, which were the things on the ground that the priests washed their hand in, but they gathered the water from the big bronze sea. So that's a lot of words to tell you what I just said in a sentence. But it's very detailed and important because... Solomon is taking a whole lot of care and he's hiring the best craftsmen to make this the most magnificent structure because it's built for God. So furnishings of the temple here in verse 40. Hiram made the lavers and the shovels and the bowls, so Hiram finished doing all the work that he was to do for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals, were on top of the two pillars. The two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals were on top of the two pillars. 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars. The 10 carts and the 10 lavers on the carts, one sea and 12 oxen under the sea, the pots, the shovels, and the bowls, all these articles which Hiram made for King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of burnished bronze in the plain of the Jordan. The king had them cast in clay molds between Succoth and Zaratan. And Solomon did not weigh all the articles because there were so many. The weight of the bronze was not determined. Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, the table of gold, which was the showbread, the lampstand of pure gold, five on the right side, five on the left, in front of the inner sanctuary with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold. The basins, the trimmers, the bowl, the ladles, and the censers of pure gold, and the hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner room, the most holy place, and for the doors, the main hall of the temple. So all of the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So really what you're getting here is Solomon took extreme care and extreme expense and building this to be a magnificent place, and he remembered the things that David had set aside for the temple once it was built. In about a year, close to a year after the temple was built, they dedicate the temple, and this is what the next chapter is all about. So chapter 8, Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, the king Solomon in Jerusalem, 
that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon in the feast of the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. <clears throat> so all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark. Then they brought up the Ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted, numbered, or numbered for multitude. So a couple of things. One, when David went to retrieve the ark, the first time he did it, he did it wrong. He tried to put the ark on a cart and have it pulled by oxen. Um, and that was a story in First Samuel's uh Sorry, I think I got my story wrong there. But David did retrieve it wrong from uh, Achan. And uh, it took him till the second time to look into what the books of the law said, that the priests were supposed to be the only ones to carry the ark and they were supposed to use the poles. So the second time David brought, attempted to bring the ark back into Jerusalem, the second time he got it right. Solomon does it right the first time, so he must have at least learned from his father's mistake there, and he actually has it done right. And then just the somber and sanctity of this moment, it states, as they're dedicating the temple, they can't even count the number of sacrifices. There's just too many, because they're trying to make this place pure and clean uh, before God as they open the temple up. So then the priests brought in the ark, this is verse 6, of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So God's presence was there that day. And, they, and it came to them as a cloud which must have been very reminiscent for them to the wandering in the desert because it, back in Exodus and in Numbers, you read that they followed God's presence by following a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire by night. And so it's not a wasn't out of the ordinary for God's presence to show up in that way. Um, it was unique, but not unlike something he would do. And the atmosphere was so thick with God's presence that the priests had to get out of the inner portions of the temple. That's pretty incredible. And Solomon spoke. Said the Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel. When all the assembly of Israel was standing and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David and with his hand fulfilled it, saying, 
Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was with the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord, God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. The Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, and I fulfilled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel. As the Lord promised, I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel, and there I have made a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. I think it's really interesting that Solomon's speech starts with so much remembering of them being brought out of Egypt by God and the connection to the pillar of smoke and how the cloud was filling the temple that day. And when they started their wandering, they were looking for a permanent place. And they, God gave them the instructions to build a tabernacle so God could dwell with them as they traveled and wandered. And now Solomon has built a permanent structure for them, and God shows up again as a cloud, kind of stamping that moment that Israel is here, the right king is on the throne, and my house is in Jerusalem. So then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants, who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand. As it is this day, therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their way, that they will walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. So Solomon prays for the fulfillment of, of that to come true, of God to keep his promise that as long as David's sons follow God, they will maintain rule in Israel. Um, that's Solomon's, Solomon's almost praying for his own demise in there, but he's also praying for the future Messiah because Jesus is the ultimate son of David who fill, fulfills that ultimate promise and is still yet to come to sit on the throne as the rightful king in his second coming. So he's praying for Jesus, but he's, he's also praying for what is about to happen with his descendants. When Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes the throne, Israel splits into two, and then after a long battle of figuring out whether or not they're going to follow God, it all falls apart, and that's the Babylonian exile. Um, but Jesus is still the ultimate fulfillment of this, so Solomon is praying both for the hope of the future and for his own family's demise. Verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Yes, his name's Jesus. Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. This is a really good point. And Solomon is 
at least making a point that Israel needed to hear. Solomon is saying, I have built this magnificent temple. It's the most magnificent building in the world. But it's silly to think that that can contain the God of the universe. This is a symbol, nothing more. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you hear the prayer with your, which your servant makes towards this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So in Solomon's dedication prayer at the temple, he's praying for the future, that when people pray towards, when, when the sons of Israel pray towards Jerusalem, towards the temple, that God will hear them because of the dwelling place that Solomon built. Now, I, I bring that up as an important reminder because we see that happen in the book of Daniel. After the temple has been torn down, and the people of Israel have been exiled for 70 years, Daniel, in chapter 6 of his book, Daniel chapter 6, when the, uh, the Persians have taken over Babylon, and Daniel is still in a good position of power with the king of Persia, the other wise men don't like Daniel, and they try to get him ousted. Not just fired, but killed. And they, they tell Cyrus, the king of Persia, hey, why don't you create a law that just for a month, no one's allowed to pray to anything but you because, oh, King Cyrus, you're so magnificent. And as any politically motivated, powerful figure has a giant ego, Cyrus buys it. And he says, sounds like a great idea. I can't wait for all the people to praise me. But unfortunately, Daniel would never, as usual, Daniel would never give up on praying to his God. And in Daniel chapter 6, it says this in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, this is the law that Cyrus was putting into place to kill anyone who didn't pray to only him for a month. When Daniel knew that that document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber opened towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. It states that when Daniel knew he was in trouble, Daniel knew what that law stated, and he knew that his life was on the line for praying to God, Daniel decided to pray to God by opening his windows towards Jerusalem like always and pray towards the temple just like Solomon asked in his prayer. And of course, you know, at the end of that story, Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den to a bunch of starving lions, and Daniel survives. But the people who came up with the law get thrown into the lion's den after Daniel, and they get eaten up immediately. So the point of that is, this plays a role in Jewish history and in biblical history, and that Daniel remembered this. And as he continued to pray towards Jerusalem and pray towards the temple, his life was saved. Verse 31, when anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes his 
takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his own way on his head, and justifying by righteousness by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people in Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people and bring them back to the land which you gave your fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned against you and they have prayed toward this place and confessed your name and turn from their sin, you afflict them. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on the land you have given to your people as an inheritance. Well, Solomon is saying, let this be a place that when people turn their hearts to you, you forgive them. He's saying, when Judgment cannot be made here on earth by someone like the king, like himself. God, you know in heaven what has been done, and we ask that you judge righteously. But when people repent and turn from their sins and come to the temple, that you would forgive them. When the nation turns their hearts away from you, and we lose to our enemies, but then we come back and we repent and we turn to you and we come to the temple, forgive your nation. Forgive those who come to the temple, forgive their sin, and reconcile with them. Well, I would recommend, just because obviously we don't have enough time, go back and listen to Exodus in our study in Exodus of the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle and the temple, the temple was was built around the same Uh, idea as the tabernacle. It was built to be the same type of structure because it was built to be the place where God is worshipped. And the tabernacle and the temple both representatively and prophetically seem to point pretty significantly to Jesus. And so in this prayer, it's interesting what Solomon is saying. Because he's saying, when people repent and turn their hearts and come to pray to the temple, forgive their sin. If the temple is a foreshadower of Christ, think about what that means. For those who come and pray and repent and turn their hearts to you and pray to the Lord Jesus, God forgive them of their sins. That is a pretty astonishing foreshadowing. Now I wanted to finish uh, chapter 8, but it's really long. So I think we're just going to stop there because that's the most important point we can make. Turn your hearts to Jesus. Repent, and he will forgive you. And the temple foreshadows that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this book. Thank you for this this moment. Thank you for the the parallels and the foreshadowing uh, and the enlightening insights as as Solomon dedicated the temple. Help us to learn from that and to be closer to you and to recognize how important repentance is and how important it is to turn our hearts towards you and to seek you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.